We have a good crowd this morning. It's a blessing for me to be here in your presence and to worship our Heavenly Father together. I consider it an honor, but also a great uh, duty that's not to be taken lightly to stand before you today and speak to you words from God. It's my prayer that this morning that you will be provoked to love and good works, that you will be more focused on God and His power as we just sang about, and about His greatness and what He has provided for us in His Word than when you came here this morning. Now we're told in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 that very thing. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. If all I do when I come here this morning is tell you something about the Bible, but it goes in one ear and out the other, and your life doesn't change, your faith isn't strengthened, what have we done here today? The intent on being here today is to provoke one another. To first glorify God, give Him the praise and adoration that He is due, but also to help each other in our walk on this earth. You know, I wrestled with what to talk about this morning. And in doing that, I decided to read through the gospel accounts of Christ. And as I did that, it was apparent to me what I needed to speak about. Because as I did that, it was over and over, it just seemed like everything in the Gospels pointed to the divinity of Christ and His validity in revealing the Scripture to us. And every word that He spake was important because it was confirmed by God. So this morning I would like to talk to you about the miracles of Christ that we find in the Gospel accounts. You know, the Apostle Peter, in his first Gospel sermon on the day of Pentecost, said in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, men, in, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Peter says it's the miracles and wonders and signs that Christ did that point to His divinity and point to who He is and what He can do for us. The Apostle John tells us, and truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The miracles of Christ prove that He is who He said He was, and that He has something that we need to listen to. That His teachings are from God. And they're not just man's ideas, or His opinions, or the thoughts of a good man a moral man, but they are directly from God the Father. You know, Christ appealed to our logic and reason as human beings and the understanding that we have of the natural ways of the world. And knowing that, He turned the world upside down and He went against nature and proved that He was different than everyone else, that He had something important to say. What he did went against the laws of nature, and it makes us think, well, who is this man? A person born blind gaining their sight. Who does that? How does that happen? 
It doesn't except but God be behind it. A person paralyzed being able to walk. A person being able to walk on water. Has that happened? No, that hasn't. Only God. Professional fishermen fishing all night, not catching a thing. And then a moment after they're told, cast it on the other side of the boat, they catch 153 fish all at once. That doesn't happen. A person dead for four days, decomposing, stinking, coming back from the grave. That doesn't happen, except it be from God. But just as in Hebrews chapter 3, where we're told the builder is greater than the building being built, I believe the truth that the miracles were confirming and the man producing the miracles are far greater than the miracles themselves. The miracles tell us, hey, stand up and listen. But what's important is what we're being told. This morning I'd like to look with you at just a few of the miracles that Christ produced in the sight of many and what we should be listening to as He confirmed the Word being preached. I know you can't see this, but this is a list of the miracles that Jesus produced that He did in the Gospels. You'll probably find one of these in the back of a lot of Bibles. You've probably seen many of these. You know, it seems as I read that there was a, there was a miracle in every single chapter. Well, in the first 11 chapters, there is at least one in the book of Mark. A miracle confirming Christ's divinity. You know, this is a long list. There's 42 items listed on this sheet. But this doesn't encompass all of them. And there's multiple miracles many times done in the same few verses. You know, like there's one that where Christ is... He comes and sees Nathaniel. And He says, Behold, a man in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel's skeptic. And he says, how do you know this? He said, before, you, before Philip came and talked to you, under the fig tree, I saw you. And what was his response? My Lord and my God. That miracle's not shown on this list. But I believe this to be a pretty good list. To break it down just a little bit, 18 of the miracles listed in the Gospels are only found in one of the Gospel accounts. I think this shows the importance of each and every gospel account and also each and every book in the Bible. Each book gives context to the rest of the Bible and adds to the picture that we have of the mind of God and of Christ Jesus, His Son. For instance, without the book of John, we would not know about Lazarus coming forth from the grave. Without the book of Luke, we would not know that the servant of the high priest's ear was cut off and then Christ restored it whole. But in John, we find out that that was Peter that did that and Malchus was the one whose ear was taken off. Like there being 18 different miracles that were specific to each uh, gospel account, there were 18 miracles that were in multiple accounts of the gospels. But there's only one that's found in all four, and that's the feeding of the 5,000. Now, I believe this gives proof and credence to the validity of the Bible. 
The Bible's not just, the four Gospels are not carbon copies of each other, where somebody took one and just wrote the exact same thing again and wanted his name on it. But they give us more depth, and they give us more about God and who he is and who his son was and is. I'd like to begin, in, and then also one more. This is, this is six different times that it says in the Gospels, many other miracles were done, too many to number, but they came, many came to him and touched the hem of his garment, or he was transfigured on the mount, or many other things happened that prove the divinity of Christ. So to begin, I'd like to look at where Jesus heals an 18-year-long crippled woman in Luke chapter 13, verse 10. It says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her to him and said to her, Woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered and said to him, Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath Loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it. So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it. For eighteen years be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath. And when he had said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and, his mul and the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him." You know, this, it defied reason for this man to be upset that this woman was made whole. She had been captive by her body for 18 years. It was, it was contrary to reason that this good thing not be done. The first thing I'd like to note about Jesus' miracles is that they were evident to everyone present. There were people that knew this woman, probably had seen her for most of those 18 years coming to the synagogue. It wasn't like a TV preacher that claimed to heal some vague illness. We don't know where that person came from. This was evident by everyone in the crowd. You know, if it wasn't evident, his enemies, the, the leader of the synagogue, wouldn't have, wouldn't have gotten on to Christ for, creating a, for doing a miracle on the Sabbath. He'd have just blown it off and said, well, that, anybody could say he healed that person because it wasn't clear that they were sick to begin with. Each one of Christ's miracles were evident by all that were in, in the presence of it. Second point I'd like to make is that Christ didn't neglect to show his, the truth because of the people around him. He didn't fear. He knew that some of the people there may be the ones that were going to say, crucify him, crucify him, as he was about to be put on the cross. But he didn't change the truth to a lie to make it appeal to his audience. He taught the truth in love. And his miracles confirmed the truth that he was sent to reveal to mankind. I also believe that this account shows that man has free will. God pre presents us the information. By His grace, He teaches us. 
But it's up to us to have faith and obey what we have been taught. You know, everyone in that synagogue was confronted with the truth. Who didn't believe the truth? The leader of the synagogue. The one that should have known the, uh, the prophecies being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. The one that should have stopped and thought, you know, something different has happened today. I've seen this woman for 18 years, and now she's whole. Maybe I need to listen to what this guy says. No, he doesn't. He looks down, condemning, condemning, he looks down upon Christ. So what truth is God trying to teach us here? I believe it's, one of the things He's trying to teach us is it's always the right time to do good. We don't set aside part of our life for doing good. Maybe it's Sunday coming to church, visiting with our, fellow, our friends and loved ones and enjoying one another's company, and then the rest of the time is left for us. And if we happen to do good, we do it. Every waking hour, every moment of our life should be focused on doing good. You know, the Jewish people, the religious leaders in particular, had elevated certain ceremonial laws above loving their neighbor, helping someone in need. And they pitted one of God's commands against the other so that they could somehow, in their mind, exclude some of the weightier things of the law. They had become cold and calloused. Rather than looking to grow in their knowledge of God and understand more fully how they could live for Him and show His love to mankind, they thought that they had, had it all figured out. They had no need for anybody to teach them, much less this man who hasn't gone to synagogue, hasn't, hasn't learned for many years at the feet of some great uh, rabbi. Who was this man? We must not use a commandment of God to justify withholding compassion from our fellow man. Or we must never think, we have it all figured out. I'm done with this learning stuff. I've got it. Now I am to impart it to other people only. The next miracle I'd like to look at is found in Matthew chapter 12, beginning verse 22. It says, Then one... Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. And he healed him, so that the blind and mute both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? So again, this is not someone that had a backache, and they come up, and they say, Jump up and down. Oh, my backache's better. This is someone that's demon-possessed, blind, and mute. It's evident that they have an issue. And the people there in the synagogue, they say, could this be the son of David? It's evident that something happened and it was directed by God. Verse 24. Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. But Jesus knew their hearts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon me. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods, unless he first bind the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whosoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. There's lots of teaching that he gave with this miracle. You know, to say the devil was casting out devils, that was absurd. People knew that. Why would the devil cast out devils? That doesn't make any sense. The Pharisees understood that. But I believe they were grasping at straws. They were not going to give up their elevated position or their perceived elevated position. No matter what happened. No matter what miracle was shown before them. Now we see in this teaching from Christ that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is very grievous. It's something you don't want to do. But it's very clear that that's exactly what these Pharisees had done. They had become so callous that they would not admit the wrongs in their life that Christ was clearly pointing out to them when a notable miracle was done before them. And they went so far to say that the Son of God, God in the flesh, was a devil and He was casting out devils. Their pride had caused them to believe that they were somehow above reproach. I remind you of Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. They know this verse. But they were blinded by their intense desire to get this man, to get him out of the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. You know, we can be a leader in the church. We can be very studied in the Scriptures. And that can raise us to a place of pride and arrogance. We cannot allow ourselves to think that at some point in our life we have arrived and we have no more need for the teachings of God. Pride is a temptation for every person, no matter how young or how old. We must remain humble enough to acknowledge that no matter how much study or time we put in to the work of the church or our Christian life, God's Word and it alone is the refining fire that, will always, that we always need that will make us sure that we're on the right path toward God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from His sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. God's Word is quick and powerful. And that's the Word that He was presenting to these people and confirming it with miracles. He's done the same for us today through the Scripture. We cannot be calloused as the Pharisees were. Going on in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, it says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? 
For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We see here, Jesus continues his admonition of the Pharisees, and he has very harsh words for them. He calls them snakes. And then, in the same sentence, in the same breath, he very pointedly says, says you are evil. He knew this because what, did they, what had they just done? They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They had taken the gift of God that was before them, the Son of God, and the miracle that was done in their sight, and they said, that's from the devil. No, he teaches us the importance of the words that we speak. You know, I suspect that there were some of the Pharisees here on this occasion that were convicted, that knew, you know, something's, something's different about this man. But I believe they were too scared to say something for fear of being an outcast. Now, we know this to be the case because in John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. John 3 verse 1 says, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these things, signs that you do unless God is with him. So he just spilled the beans. Jesus knew the hearts of those Pharisees to begin with. He knew the hearts of everyone that he came in contact with. But here a leader of the Jews, one on the Sanhedrin, comes and says, we know you're Christ. We know you're from God because nobody could do this unless they were. But because of their desire to maintain their position, they would not, because of pride, acknowledge it in front of the people. You know, I think it's important to note that no matter how extreme we may feel or think that peer pressure is on us, we must not follow a multitude to do sin. God tells us very early in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 23, verse 2, those, that very thing. Also, here we see that Jesus says that the words we speak will either justify us or condemn us before God. Now, it goes back to the treasure that we have hidden in our heart. Jesus was making the point that the Pharisees' hearts were controlled by the evil held within because they had not bound and completely gotten rid of the evil that was in their hearts, it had bound them and was controlling their every action. While I believe the Pharisees, some of them at least truly, wanted to be holy and righteous, because of their sinful desires like pride, covetousness, and envy, their pursuit of righteousness was turned into hypocrisy and then being accurately described by Jesus as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. I believe the truths that Jesus is teaching us in this example, or through this teaching, are very important to us today. We are all either all in for Christ, or we're not for Him at all. And the seemingly small part of our heart that we withhold from Him will cause us to stray 
and to stay captive to evil and sin. And we will be, end up being just as these Pharisees, hypocrites and detestable to God. Jesus makes the, the point in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The word abundance in Matthew 12 and 34 is from Strong's 4051, and it means surplus, superabundance, abundance that was left over and above, far greater than the container can, withhold, can hold. It's over and above. Now, if we are going to speak good things, our hearts have to be overflowing with good things. So how do we fill our hearts? How do you fill your heart? How do I fill my heart? We fill it by what we see, what we hear, and what we do. Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good and your whole body then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now I'm going to stomp on my own toes for just a minute, but maybe, maybe it applies to you. I hope that you'll put your, think about your own life and see how it affects you. You know, we have had several sermons recently about our need to tell others about the gospel and to fulfill the Great Commission. And several sermons about becoming more Christ-like in our actions, having clean hands and a pure heart. You know, it's not complicated. I ask each one of you here today, what is abundantly filling your heart each day? What are you looking at? What are you listening to? What are you doing with your time that you've been given. Every one of us has been given the same amount each day. You know, probably all of us above the age of 10 have one of these that we have access to and that we can use from time to time. I can tell you, two weeks ago, I spent 28 hours and 17 minutes on my phone. Now, this isn't on my computer. This isn't studying the Word of God as well, or talking about farming, or farming, or talking about thinking about farming, or any other pursuits that I have. This is just on my phone. Seven hours and 22 minutes were listening to podcasts of sermons. Five hours and one minutes was searching the internet on Safari. Four hours and six minutes was reading a Bible app. Two hours and 34 minutes was looking at Fox News. An hour and 50 minutes was sending and receiving messages. And only 44 minutes was actually talking on the phone. So how does that compare to last week? So that was two weeks ago. What about last week? 24 hours and 16 minutes. 6 hours and 45 listening to podcasts and sermons. 2 hours and 26 minutes I read my Bible app. 2 hours and 9 minutes I sent and received messages. 2 hours and 7 minutes were searching the internet. An hour and 45 minutes was listening to a Bible app. And only 40 minutes of the week was spent looking at Fox News and 38 minutes talking on the phone. So that's a lot of information, and it's tedious. And it, my point is, don't look, look at me, look what I've done. I want you to look at what you've done. And ask yourself, are the things that I'm pursuing, the things that I'm doing, are they filling my cup up with righteous, with good things? Or is it a detriment to you, to me? You know, I don't even have Facebook, Instagram, and the other apps that there are. 
I guess I'm too old to, for that to be a desire of mine. I'm glad I don't because maybe I would fill up my time with them as well. So why do I tell you this? I want to make a point. As I studied for this lesson, it became evident to me that there were things that were taking up space in my life that weren't filling my cup up and overflowing, helping me to overflow in goodness. You know, and it wasn't necessarily the things that were at the top of my list. It was some of the smaller things, but yet they were taking me away from the pursuit of God. One of them being Fox News. Went from two hours to about 40 minutes. You know, I can justify in my mind, I need to know and keep up with what's happening in the political world. How is it going to affect my family? How, is it, how am I going to have to deal with new laws that come in to affect the church? But the point is, that draws me away from the pursuit of God. And if I'm constantly thinking about that, rather than thinking about how I can serve God and be a, a, a light to the world, I'm not able to do what God expects me to do. I can tell you my faith is stronger this past week. As I was studying to give a lesson, as I was more engrossed in God's Word, and as I let the other stuff go away, and I didn't spend my time on them. It's not just about the time that we spend, but it's about the time after that that it keeps us off track from pursuing God. You know, maybe a, the phone is not an issue to you. I venture to guess that if you're my age or 10 years older or less, it probably is. Take account. Look. See if there's things that are keeping you from being able to be productive in God's kingdom. How does the time you spend reading and studying your Bible compare with all the other things in your life? This doesn't even consider the things like going to work, doing a job, thinking about that job, trying to raise a family, trying to uh, take the kids and ha allow them to be involved in different things. Do you read and study your Bible more than you keep up with the Joneses on Facebook? Do you spend more time on your fantasy football team than on thinking about opportunities to tell others about Christ? You know, probably, and it's been mentioned several times in, in sermons recently, probably the hardest thing or the hardest part about talking to someone about Christ is that first conversation, is that first talk, getting on the subject of Christ. Because we want to bring it up, but we don't want it to be awkward. You know, what if somebody asks you, what have you been up to today? And you can honestly tell them, well, I've been studying the miracles of Christ. And it's really been eye-opening to me. And there's things in there that I hadn't really thought about. You're being honest with them. They asked a question, you gave them an honest answer. What could that conversation lead to? If someone asks you the question on any given day, what's up in your life? Would the first thing that comes to mind be where you have been reading in your Bible or what you have been doing to further the kingdom of God? Or would it be some other pursuit? Maybe we need to evaluate what's making up the abundance in our heart. What we look at, what we hear, and what we do. Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 12 for a minute and continue reading in verse 38. So remember, this is in the same setting. Jesus has just healed a man that was demon-possessed, blind, and mute. Verse 38 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. What has he just done? He answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will, raise up, will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. You know, this would be comical if it wasn't sad and frustrating. Show us a sign. You just healed this man. He's, he's demon-possessed. He can't speak. And he's blind. Show us something. It didn't matter what was done in front of these people. Their heart was hardened. And they were not going to allow God's Word to penetrate into their heart and convict them of the sin in their life. After both Lazarus and Christ were raised to life in their presence, many of them seeing them after they were risen, what was their response? That was another sign given to them. That was the sign of Jonah, dead three days in the belly of the earth and then raised from the dead. What did they want to do? They wanted to kill Lazarus and Jesus himself. What makes us think that another sign from God would penetrate our hard hearts when God's Word, confirmed by the miracles and the prophecies, doesn't touch us. The last miracle I want to look at with you today is given in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. And then, behold, men brought a bed, on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in, because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, He said to them, Men, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, He answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power to, on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man that was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take you up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. What great truth was Christ 
proving to them or teaching to them and confirming with this miracle. He was showing that that showing them that the one that was in their presence was the one that could forgive sins. He forgave these forgave these man's sins. And then to confirm it before their physical eyes, he said, "Get up, take up your bed and go home." You know, the Pharisees didn't have to tell Christ what they were thinking. He knew what was in their heart. They didn't have to ask him or they didn't have to say, "You can't do that." He, the Bible says that he knew what they thought. By showing that he had control over all nature, even the, most, the physical things that man could not fix, he was hoping that the Pharisees would use their logic and reasoning to realize the more important truth, that the one that was in their presence had control over all things spiritual. Today, Jesus Christ is still in control of both the physical and the spiritual. The Bible tells us that He stands at the door and knocks at each and every one of our hearts. He desires for us to let Him in. But as we mentioned earlier, we have free will. We can keep the door shut, just as these Pharisees, just as these scribes did, just as the leaders of the Jewish people did. If we don't choose to open our hearts, He's not going to break the door down. The miracles and signs He performed along with all the prophecies He fulfilled and the truths that He taught give us more than enough reason to open the door to our heart and let Him in and let Him have control. Now, Jesus continued to teach Nicodemus in John chapter 3 what was required of Him to become a child of God. He said, Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We do that through obedience to the gospel. This morning, I hope that you will continue to study about the, God, the miracles of Christ. You know, we've just touched on about two or three of them this morning. There's many, many others and many, many other teachings that were confirmed by the miracles that we need to know, that we need to write on our hearts, that we need to fill up our cup with so that we can overflow and abound and be productive in God's kingdom. In John chapter 6 and verse 23, it says, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words confirmed by Christ are spirit and life. He tells us, Come, everyone, everyone that's weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for, for my ways are easier than your ways. He promises to give us a better life. If you want to put on Christ in baptism, that's how you become a child of God. That's how you begin to be fruitful and abound in the work of God. If you want to put on Christ in baptism this morning, or if you want the prayers of the church, please come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation.